0: On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue.
1: Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Sampson, an anthropologist at the University of Toronto and leading scholar on biology and human evolution. He's also the author of the must-read new book, Our Tribal Future, how to channel our foundational human instincts into a force for good, which brings science, ethics, and history into our understanding of the tribal instinct. I'm grateful to speak with him about where tribalism comes from How it motivates us, and ultimately, how we can accentuate the good parts of tribalism and minimize the bad ones. David, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thanks so much, Sean. I'm really happy to be here. One of the book's key insights is that tribalism comes from evolution. Talk a bit about that, David. How is tribalism an evolutionary development, and how is that different from a learned behavior, say, about social organization?
2: Yeah, that really is the million dollar question. So it, it's so important, especially in the moment that we're in as a species, to realize how great of an influence our tribal identity is. It really does alter our view of the world and our perception of it in so much that every idea that we're going to discuss today will in large part be accepted or denied based on our preexisting identities and the associated beliefs of it. Mm. So it's really crucial to keep this in mind. One recent study that came out, Oberst and Imhoff, it was this year, found that of the 150 psychological biases that have been recorded out there, literally they can be boiled down to six things. And they're really, really tribal things. So it's things like, I am good. So that's a bias that we all have. We all think that we have some sort of precipice on what the moral good is. My group is good, right? So you're you're already just saying the social other, the social self is a part of that goodness. I make correct assessments about the world. My experience is a reasonable reference, meaning it's generalizable. And my group's experience is generalizable, to also reasonable reference. The one bias that we might deep dive today is that people's attributes, not the context by which they choose, but their attributes shape the outcomes that they're seeking. So the question is, why and how did this happen? And to get at that from what I think you're trying to ask here is the evolutionary roots of this really crucial trait. Precisely. Yeah, I think one really useful analogy here is that of the human movie, because to to be able to map this out, we have to basically compress 1.8 million years of human evolution into a way that's digestible for the average person that's listening right now to this podcast. So I use this analogy of a human movie. It's 100 minutes long, your average movie, right? In the very first minute of the movie, we start with the human story 1.8 million years ago. And something radical happens with respect to how our ancestors were doing things beforehand. These Australopithecines have a pap chimp like things surviving in the gallery forests of Africa. We come down to the savannah grassland and we start congregating in camps. What's a camp? A camp is 20 to 30 individuals, they're adults and they're children. And they're working together for the shared project of survival and reproduction. And really, this is a super unique way of of survival. And humans do this in minute one. And here we have morality shifting already to a very recognizable human scale in the sense that our face-to-face intuitions of what it's like to keep harmony amongst a group likely started evolving here. So the the blessings that we got with this moral update in our evolution was something along the lines of our pro-sociality are willing to share a little bit of a hunt with our our family and our kith and our kin. But one of the, the curses was the norm for canceling. And if you break a social norm, you are excommunicated out of the group and you might die or starve. And so this happens at minute one. And it's basically kind of a the, the movie from here is actually kind of boring. It's like a, you would need a David <laughs> Attenborough to really spice it up because it doesn't change in any significant way for 84 minutes. Okay. So at, at minute 84, we're fast forwarding 300,000 years ago. Something really cool happens. And that's when tribalism, the adaptation of the tribe drive evolves. And so what's tribalism? Tribalism is essentially when you have a bias that intuits your group as inherently superior to other groups. And so let me define a tribe real quick. A tribe is an intersubjective belief network that signals coalitionary alliance to bootstrap trust amongst strangers. And this happens around that 300,000 year ago mark. We can tell this through the paleoanthropological record. We see evidence that groups around this time were trading with other groups and they were so far away from their home groups and they were doing trade with goods that look so d- different in terms of what the other groups were doing that it was probably an us trading with a them, okay? And by the time it, you get to one minute left in the movie, you've had this documentary and now it turns into a science fiction thriller because mm-hmm. all of a sudden it just, humanity starts spiraling out of control. With a minute left, we become the sole. Inheritors of the earth. We're the last hominid on the planet. We outcompete Neanderthals. And I think a lot of that has to do with this capacity to symbolically use information to project coalitionary alliance. With 30 seconds left, we have the advent of agrarian society, civilization. And here's where a big mismatch starts happening because we're starting to get sedentary. And with that sedentism, we're really. Departing away from that camp like structure that we had at minute one in the movie. Then, with 15 seconds left, we have the admin of writing, which props up at 10 seconds left, religion, ideology. And then, with half a second left, something really, really bizarre happens. We go from with basically the entire movie, we've been living in these camp structures, and all of a sudden, we decide to create the nuclear family out of nowhere. And it was an an invention in North America by the Levitt brothers, and this nuclear family was the last little bit of mismatch that we had going where we all of a sudden were out of the camps that we've been surviving in. And we were basically created the McDonald's of social patterns. And this mismatch has affected our social health ever since.
1: That's a great answer. And we'll spend the rest of the conversation reviewing the, the movie, as you put it. Yeah. You mentioned trust. I, I want to take that up, David. Talk about the role of trust in the book. What's its significance in explaining the power of tribalism?
2: Yeah, so this gets at what we kind of get at in terms of what is good about tribalism. Think of tribalism, think of the tribe drive, this, this innovation to basically to be able to signal that you're part of a team. It's almost like you're part of a s- secret society. And if you authentically signal this coalitionary alliance, you get massive benefits because for the people who receive it, they see you as trustworthy, even though you are a stranger. Now think about this from the perspective of animal behavior. This is actually remarkable. If we go to our common ancestor and our shared, our closest shared species with the chimpanzee, which we share our common ancestor going back six and a half million years, they hate strangers. In fact, they hate all strangers so much so that if you were to take a chimp and rear them in a different group and then try and implant them into a, a group by the time they're an adolescent or adult, they are, that's a death sentence to them because to chimps, there's no really no acceptable circumstance where they'll, where they'll accept a stranger. We created this tribe signaling process where when we signal the right codes of coalitionary alliance, that means it's like a cheat sheet or a heuristic. You're bootstrapping cooperation amongst those individuals. So really, this was an innovation that was meant to give us the capacity to trust at scale. Before that, life had been doing things the old-fashioned way, which the very first innovation in, in trust from an evolutionary standpoint was basically, who do you distribute your resources to, your time and energy to? And that's kin selection. So individuals that share genes you're going to go ahead and share time and energy with. And then in really big brained animals, only about a dozen on the planet, do you have friendship, actual real friendship, where the brains are big enough and the social complexity is complex enough to where you have a ledger of record individuals that then you can build off of that ledger of record and create a trusted relationship. But note here, Sean, that all those are face-to-face. Kin is face-to-face. Friendship is face-to-face. And what, what the challenge for Homo sapiens was we got so successful, we were encroached by strangers. Strangers were everywhere, especially when once you get past agrarian society where you've got people on top of people on top of people. So this was really a hack into our symbolic
1: brain to figure out a way for us to cooperate at scale. May I ask a follow-up question, David? Yeah. Does it follow then that tribalism would be more prevalent in low trust societies so it's the tribalism is really a birthright of all humans it's
2: so ingrained and the biases that i was talking about in the onset of our and are so so solid and so intrinsic that you're gonna see this happen under the hood no matter where we are
1: Okay, well, let's move on to the basis of tribalism. Why don't you talk a bit about that? What's the role of, say, race or religion or shared interest or ideology or whatever? How does tribalism manifest itself differently depending on these different bases? Yeah, so this gets us into one of my favorite parts of, of the book, and
2: that's tribal trust signals. It's how we emit that symbolic data in the, into the world that says, I'm part of this group. And we should either cooperate or we should compete. A great example that will ground this for the listeners is how quickly this can be utilized, even in very, very highly volatile contexts to switch teams. It's super powerful when you understand the power of tribal signals. One example goes from the Battle of Gettysburg. Lewis Armistead was a officer for the for the Confederate Army, and he was. This was one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War. He was leading a picket charge. He gets hit with a bullet, and he gets thrown off his horse. And as he's bleeding out, he lifts his hands to the heavens, and he's emitting a signal, a signal of coalitionary alliance. And in one second, sides change. And this is super remarkable. Hiram Bingham was an officer in the Union Army, saw this signal, went and picked up Lewis Armistead, brought him to the field house and actually promised to take back his goods to his family as he was dying. There were three things. There was his journal, his spurs and a Masonic necklace. And Hmm. so that signal was a signal that literally it's a, I don't know what the signal is because it's a secret signal of their society. (laughs) And he lifted it into the air and somebody went from an enemy, a mortal enemy that was fighting on a battlefield to all of a sudden in a second becoming an elevated identity, which they shared. And that was as a Mason. And that little instance of projecting a signal into your environment can literally mean the the difference between life or or death. And that's because we are a symbolic species. So for example, let's evoke the Canadian flag right now. Right, This will demonstrate how genetically predisposed we are to be a symbolic species. So imagine the Canadian flag, it's just non-random red and white distributed on nylon, right? That's all it is objectively, veridically. But when you and I think about the Canadian flag, we're not seeing it for what it actually is. We're seeing history, ideology, demographics, the feelings and the emotions that are linked to these abstract concepts, right? And that's how this works. It works by capturing that symbolic information, projecting it out into the world, so that others can then model your behavior and attempt to predict it in a way
1: that might bootstrap that trust amongst you, so that you can cooperate at scale. As I understand it, David, a key argument in the book is that tribalism can occur almost imperceptibly, including to those in the tribe. I can think of some counterexamples like gang members or something. Mm-hmm. Help us understand the, the argument. Yeah. So think about it, it. It really is unconscious. Like
2: most instincts, 99% of it's happening under the hood. And you only sort of rationalize or justify the behavior after the fact post hoc. So these unconscious signals work like many other unconscious signals in the environment. So let's take sex signals, for example. So in the eye alone, there's about five different signals of fecundity. And we we don't consciously think of of this when we're interacting with somebody, for example, how bluish the sclera is, or how prominent the limbal ring is. That's that little black line around the iris, dilated pupils. All these things signal to a potential mate that the reproductive capacity of the individual. All that's happening under the hood. And what you experience or feel is I'm attracted to this person, right? <laughs> that's that's all you get. And that's the same thing with coalitionary line signaling, with tribal signaling. You're just like man, I don't know what it is about this person, but I just gravitate towards them and I really want to like do a project with them. But maybe it's just you're wearing the same band
1: t-shirt. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's something as unconscious as, as that. It's pretty powerful. If tribalism is about in-groups and out-groups, how does it work imperceptibly? Don't we need to decide who's in and out and, and, and therefore make it abundantly clear to others? Absolutely. The, the value proposition here of doing that is really
2: it's, it's not about necessarily stating a, a condition of truth or veracity. The value proposition of doing that is signaling the strength that you have for that particular coalitionary alliance. So in this instance, it's really interesting because you can have you can believe in something that's untrue and it's rational. Let's take flat earth, for example. So I don't know if you've seen the documentary Behind the Curve. It's a it's a beautiful documentary about the Flat Earth movement, which had been gaining steam relatively recently. And there's an individual character in it called Mark Sargent. And he's sort of the 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 leader of the Flat Earth movement. He's got a podcast. He's got this massive community and massive following. And this really fascinating thing happens with one minute left in the documentary where In a candid back and forth with the producer, the producer asked, Well, what if, what if you like one day just decided that the world was round and you can see this existential sort of terror in, in, in this character's eyes, in Mark's eyes. And he goes, Actually, that I could never do that because my community would, wouldn't let, they wouldn't let me go. And (laughs) now it was just this moment, this candid, like behind the scenes moment where it was like, okay, this isn't actually about like flat earthism. This is about being connected within a social environment, in a social network where I feel valued, where Mm -hmm. I have some station, where I have some status, and I am an honored member of this group. And that's what the value proposition is. Donald Hoffman, a a evolutionary psychologist, he said, the truth won't make you free, it will make you extinct. And so it really is the case that For most of human evolution, it wasn't about figuring out what was true. It was about figuring out how can we become a tightly bonded group so we can survive an incredibly hostile environment that includes threats from our ecology, it includes threats from just natural disaster, and it includes threats from other people. So that's why all this signaling is so critical to what it is to be a homo sapien.
1: Talk about what you term the quote, Tribe drive. Uh, how mm-hmm. does it influence our thinking and behavior? So, one good example here, um, Muzaffer Sharif. He is one of the
2: the the big classic uh, researchers that came up with realistic conflict theory, and he has a really famous study where he had students and kids that were incredibly very very similar in their up, upbringing and their background. So. They were from Kansas. They were from the middle class. They were Protestant. They were white. And they were between 12 and 14 years old. And he had them go to a summer camp. And what he was trying to figure out was what is the mechanism by which people group together and compete against each other? And how, how fluid is this thing? And what he discovered was something kind of quite remarkable, and it directly tackles what the tribe drive is. Ultimately, we're not born racist, but we are born coalitionists. This group, he had them on day one, create identities. So it was, the, it was the Rattlers versus the Eagles. And he set up a situation where they had to compete over very limited resources, things like awards or toys or, or gifts or candy or food. And it got it escalated so quickly where the Rattlers had a sort of a default aggressive, very cocky sort of group identity. And they had a flag and the other the uh, the other team, the Eagles, burned the flag, and then in reprisal, the Rattlers went and like ransacked the cabin of the Eagles, and it got nasty really, really quick. And what this showed is that you don't need to be phenotypically you know, like you don't need to look different for yes. prejudice to exist and for it to manifest very easily. You just need to be able to signal some very basic arbitrary things that note that you're part of a team. And that differentiates you from another team developmentally, Darrow Yunum, she did some beautiful studies with grade school kids. All they did, Sean, to show this exact same phenomena was randomly hand out blue shirts and orange shirts. And then all of a sudden, during recess, they started grouping together by their shirt color. They were not compelled to do this. They started wow. sharing with the groups that had their t-shirt. They started competing with the groups naturally with that didn't have the t-shirt of their same color. And then when they were told stories or anecdotes about the other group, they would preferentially bias. The kids would bias their side in the recollection painted their side as the moral altruists and the other side as the bad guys. And all this was done. And they were like, you know, in grade school, the only thing that was different was their t-shirt color. And so it really is a powerful signal on, on coalitionary behavior.
0: Hey Hub listeners. There's a lot of gloomy news out there these days when it comes to the state and future of Canadian journalism, we're seeing mass layoffs across some of the country's biggest media organizations. We're seeing news disappear from some of the country's biggest social media platforms. Well, what does this all mean for the hub? Well, thanks to you, our loyal readers and listeners, The Hub is thriving. We're seeing record engagement across our various platforms and offerings, adding new voices, series and content, and all of this would not be possible without your support. If you haven't already become a donor to The Hub, consider doing so now. For as little as 25 cents a day, you can make a major contribution to our ongoing operations and our ability to be a credible and authoritative alternative to much of the mainstream media. Make your donation now at www.thehub.ca.
1: Are the benefits of tribalism merely utilitarian, or do they offer broader relational upsides? If so, how might we think about tribalism and the rise of loneliness? Are lonely people just those who haven't found tribes? Yeah,
2: so that's a really nuanced question, because when I think of tribes, I actually think of beyond face-to-face. So when I think of subtribal relationships and subtribal social networks, there I'm thinking about your kith and kin, your family networks, maybe your local church. Sort of the difference between the local church you attend is, say, it's a Catholic church, right? The local church you attend versus the Roman Catholic church writ large, right? So the, this is the distinction to be made, and what I think is going on right now that is producing this massive phenomena right now, we, where we have an endemic loneliness, an epidemic of loneliness. In fact, the Surgeon General just made an announcement a few months ago saying that it was one of the biggest threats to to health and wellness in the United States right now. And what I think is happening is that we've gotten our we've weighted our groups in a skewed way. So now, and this this just happened. I just taught this class called The Trust Paradox, based off a lot of the content of the book, for a summer course. And when I had my students rank their groups and the ones they identify with, and then measure out the proportion that were actually tribal versus subtribal, there was a shocking number of students where all the groups they identified with were tribal groups. They had no groups they identified with that were face-to-face, and they were all things like a political party or some like big institution. And it's like, that's not the path to wellness. In fact, that might be the path to madness. If your, if your sense of self and sense of identity is say with a political tribe, then that's that. I mean, I'm not saying don't be politically active or interested in the future, but definitely start putting a lot of your emotional energy into those sub-tribal groups that can truly facilitate health and wellness.
1: Yeah, I think just in parentheses Frederick High talked about the the difference between the macrocosm and the microcosm. Mm. It, it seems increasingly like we've committed ourselves to these relationships at the macrocosm level at the expense of relationships in, in at the microcosm. What do you attribute that trend to, David? So so Sean, that's the crucial question. So it's
2: and this is why it was really valuable starting out with that human movie analogy because we started out in camps at minute 1, remember? And now we have a situation where we're dislocated from the social condition by which 99 minutes of that movie took place. Meaning this is called evolutionary mismatch. And it was one of the, the, the theoretical underpinnings of the, especially the first half of the book, because I believe we are in a state of evolutionary mismatch, meaning our bodies and our minds evolved for how things were not how things are. So let me give you a good example of, of mismatch in a natural environment. This is a pretty humorous one, actually. So, the South African jewel beetle has been recently undergoing a massive selective decrease in its population, not by anything in the environment, but by beer bottles being thrown out by humans in this South African environment. And basically, it's tricking the signaling system, the attraction system of the males, because they're really, they find sexy these big pits in the females shells and their wings, but the beer bottles have bigger pits and sexier looking contours. And so they're mating with the beer bottles, right? So this is a situation where a species is put in danger and put into threat on the basis of the fact that it was evolved for one condition. And now that that evolutionary (laughs) precondition is being hijacked. And I think we have something similar going on with our social mismatch. So if you look at some of the statistics right now, for adolescents, it's actually kind of scary. So over 40% of college students report being too depressed to function most days. 50% are saying they regularly feel on a day-to-day basis feelings of hopelessness. Two-thirds are saying they're overwhelmingly anxious. And 10% of college students are having serious considerations of suicidal ideation this uh, these studies have been ongoing throughout the 2000s up till now it's doubled since 2009 and so you've this is just a great example of that and I- isolation in adults is just as deadly or even more deadly loneliness is predictive of increased broad based morbidity and mortality across the board loneliness makes it harder for your adult brain to to grow and to change it's called neuroplasticity it predicts antisocial behavior. It increases your baseline stress because you're basically your your metabolism is burning super hot. Because if you think you're isolated, you know that there's nobody in your environment with a second pair of eyes to help you face those challenges. So you're burning your basal metabolic rate is just burning hotter. You're burning faster the whole time. It loneliness predicts drug use. It predicts suicide. It actually makes your genes for the worse. Because it produces pro-inflammatory transcription factors, which is bad. We know inflammation is super bad. And this is all to the point where one researcher said loneliness is tied to being more likely to die at any time of any cause at any phase of life. And I think one of
1: the big things tying this all together is we are in a state of evolutionary social mismatch. As populations in countries like Canada become more culturally and racially heterogeneous is there a reason to think we may become more tribal? Well, the good news here is that, in fact,
2: remember I said, ultimately, we're not born racist. We're born coalitionists. And so the good news is that maybe we can get around racism by thinking deeply about our tribalism. One study that I think is super important to illustrate this point is Robert Kurzband and colleagues. They came out with a study... Called Can Race Be Erased? And the really shocking and, and I think very encouraging and optimistic answer is that yes, under four minutes of updating somebody's model, you can make someone's skin color, which is essentially just the concentration of melanin in the skin, you can make that a trait that is no longer as predictive in your models of who's on whose team. They basically did this with switching up their, their steady design was looking at a basketball team and they had different participants in the basketball team being showed to the, to the people who were taking the study and you had differences in skin color and you had differences in the t-shirt and they were changing that up. And depending on how they arranged that the t-shirt color became a much more powerful predictor of who's going to cooperate with who than otherwise. So Again, I think that's something that we, this is the kind of science we should be shouting at the rooftops, saying that, you know, we just have to be mindful of this, this instinct. And what we know from a scientific empirical standpoint is that the only way that Homo sapiens can get around being controlled by an instinct is to elevate it to our awareness. And so by doing that, it's these conversations that we're having right now, right here. By doing that, we increase the likelihood of potentially pro-social outcomes versus anti-social outcomes.
1: Are there ways, David, to bring expression to those findings in public policy? I know I'm thinking, for instance, in an educational setting, maybe even the way in which policy itself is developed, who's around the table and how that process is carried out. Perhaps it has applications for corporations. Just talk a bit about the, the practical applications of those fascinating and, as you say, promising insights.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing we need to keep acutely aware of is that the level of political tribalism that's happening, especially in the United States at the moment, is pretty scary. I think of political tribalism as sort of a weaponized tribalism, where you're taking it's, it's almost creating the, the worst manifestations of our group groupish instinct versus the best, and I think definitely going through a couple exercises, even just on the individual, the self. So I think there's a couple different ways we can go about this. So in the book, I talk about tribalist self diagnostics. And I think I, I would challenge everybody to, to go through these self diagnostics. And it was incredibly helpful for me going through this as well. And it's shaped the way that I, I view this particular topic. So one self diagnostic is the moral equivalency test, like the mirror. Game, And basically, you are imagining, say, some political leader on the outgroup, right, your political enemy, and they get busted for, say, tax evasion or tax fraud. Now, as soon as you bring that into into your mind, reverse it and put your political leader or a a team member of your political tribe in that same scenario and see what your brain does with it. Does it begin to make excuses? Does it begin to justify? Or is it just as indignant and and righteously upset as it was for the outgroup? And if there's any difference at all, then you know you might have some level of this failure of a moral equivalency. A second one is the moral valence test. How, How virulent is my tribalism, right? And this one's a really important one. Because it gets at the the preconditions for dehumanization, which is some of the the worst manifestations of our of our tribe drive. And this one basically, um, imagine if an outgroup, imagine some symbols of an outgroup, right? Maybe the flag of a rival political party. Is there any con- feelings of contempt there, right? Imagine a tweet that a political outgroup makes. Does have you ever had the response? Well, that's just disgusting, right? If you, if you could say yes, then that is actually something to flag because what's going on when you say that's disgusting on the neurophysiological level, you are tapping into your insular cortex. Your insular cortex is an ancient piece of hardware in your brain meant to help you avoid toxins and things that will kill or harm you. And Uh what you're saying by, well, that disgusts me is the brain layered. Any violation of social norms on top of that insular cortex. So we see moral violations as though it were a physical toxin. We experience the moral violation. And that is deeply rooted in our evolutionary history. So if if that's happening and you have a disgust response, then you know you might need to to take a take some moments and meditate because you're being manipulated right now by by your tribe drive. And then the last little bit there, the last self-diagnostic is the one I was telling you about with respect to my identity stack, right? List out the, the groups that you are really proud to belong to and then measure the proportion of them that are tri- actually tribal, that is beyond face-to-face versus sub-tribal. the ones mm. that are, are groups that are actually face-to-face. And what you want is to reweight those so that you have more groups that you're proud to belong to that are face-to-face versus non-face-to-face. And so in terms of getting back to your question about policy and how we do that. I think a lot of it is bring the temperature in the room down. And the way to do that is to elevate these particular diagnostics to to people's routines and make sure that anytime you feel sort of triggered as, as a moral response and a disgust response, that you're mindful of
1: what's going on under the hood. That's a fascinating answer. Really useful insights, David. You've just outlined some steps that we can take individually to be more cognizant of our tribal instinct and where it can lead us astray. Do you want to talk a bit about what we can do collectively to accentuate the good parts of tribalism and minimize the bad? So in terms of how I see
2: this playing out on on a species level, one idea I've been playing around with here is the tribalism vaccine hypothesis. And I talk about a little bit about this in the the final chapter of, of my book. And so let's use an analogy of a vaccine, right? So if we think of tribalism, the worst parts of tribalism, as a virus, as like a mind virus, then we think of possible ways to inoculate yourself against the worst parts of tribalism. And so you need an immunogen and an adjuvant. The immunogen is that active ingredient that you're taking from the virus, that you're using it as a way to fight it, using itself against it, right? And then the adjuvant is the instruction giving protocol of the vaccine. And so in this analogy the immunogen that I I'm trying to concoct here is that of identity protective cognition. So you want to take that thing that makes us want to protect our in-group. Identity protective cognition is one of the most universal human biases. It means that you're going to you're going to protect cognitively protect anything that attempts to threaten your identity group. So we want to use that against tribalism. So the immunogen is IPC, identity protective cognition, and the adjuvant would then be meta-belief. So there's this one term, this is a Penny Cook et al. paper. This is the term (laughs) meta-belief. It's super powerful. And meta-belief is the belief that beliefs can change. Mm. And that means that you're you're in a system by which you have epistemic humility and you're open to hearing other people's points of view. And you can be very productive on that end. So if you combine as a sacred value in your in-group meta-belief, and combine that with identity protective cognition, and you get you scale that up to enough Homo sapiens on the planet that identify as that group, which I call the meta-tribe in the book, then that might be some sort of type of terminus tribe that protects us at scale.
1: Final question: We have talked earlier, David, about your argument that one of the principal challenges we face today is this evolutionary mismatch between the way we think about tribe and how it manifests itself in a a modern society that looks a lot different from when this evolutionary instinct first took root. What's the process out of that mismatch? I'm I'm not going to ask you to predict the future of evolution, but talk a a little bit about, um, based on your research and thinking, how we might bring our evolutionary instinct into something closer to alignment with the demands and pressures and functions of modern society?
2: Yeah, no, that's a wonderful question. And it's just right now, you can have so much speculation on what that is because our technologies of trust are rapidly innovating. And I think the key word you just said there was alignment. So it's, we're in a kind of a state of misalignment and the goal is trying to get back at a scale of human interaction that is in alignment. One cool promising thing that might help us get to more of a scale where we are actually at a, a what we I would call an organic or a good tribe is a tribe that is consists most, mostly of relationships at a very low scale. So if you look at small scale hunter-gatherers or small scale societies across the planet, your average tribe at that scale is between fifteen and 1,800 adults. So we're talking here like small towns, right? That's about the cognitive threshold we are really good at. It's like an optimum, a human optimum to work with, with local strangers at scale. So we really need to think about the technologies of decentralization. And so... There's several different technologies that are actually kind of quite promising. You know, we, right now we're using the te- decentralized technologies of communication, which is fantastic. It means that despite the fact of our geographical distance, you can live in a community you're invested in and that is invested in you. I can do the same. We can still cooperate at a super tribal level, but live our lives day to day in a scale and scope that's that's healthy for us. So communication's very key, I think. There's some new emerging technologies in terms of like DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations that help internet native tribes build a group level identity out in the online world and then gather up resources, come together over a alignment over a, a social value that they want to promote, and then manifest it in the real world together. And so these types of technologies of trust, as they emerge, I think we need to try and wrangle them to help
1: increase human flourishing at the scales that we were designed to work together at. That's just a, a ton of insight in an answer, as there's been throughout this conversation, and indeed in the book, its title, Our Tribal Future, How to Channel Our Foundational Human Instincts into a Force for Good. David Sampson, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you so much, Sean. It's been an absolute blast.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.